Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, where we have what is called the Sermon on the Mount, contained in three chapters. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon ever written down, the greatest sermon you'll ever read, and we'll try to explain it. And we'll try to be convicted by it. Lord, help us to that end. This is the pure religion of Jesus Christ. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine which is according to godliness. I would like you to pretend in your spiritual minds that Jesus Christ is addressing you with these words from Matthew chapter 5. He spoke these words on this earth. These words were written down without error by a transcriber named Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy God. He has called your pastor to preach these words to you. And he's led your pastor to these words for this day. And all that's in the sovereign power of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing you in the way that he's chosen to address his saints for the last 2,000 years. Humble yourselves before him. The Lord of glory is sitting on a mountain. And you are gathered together before him with great multitudes that gathered themselves all the way from the other side of Jordan... Galilee and Jerusalem. If you go look at a Bible map, you will find that this crowd had traveled a long distance to see and hear the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells me in the last couple of verses, the last verse of verse of chapter 4, and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. That is a huge geographical area. When there, when there weren't cars and planes to get them there. And they all came, and Jesus went into a mountain and sat down and taught his people. And I will go through verse 12 today, the Lord willing. Let me read to you these first 12 verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, When men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen and amen. Amen. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in the red writing in most of your Bibles, if you have a red letter edition Bible. 
This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his doctrine. This is his pure religion. This is Christianity right here. We're going to find out very quickly that the the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a religion of your head. He doesn't care what you know. He cares about what you do. It's not a religion of your hands. He doesn't care what you do outwardly. He wants to know what you're doing from your heart. That's his religion. And here it is before us. When great multitudes followed the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not preach John 3.16 to them. When great multitudes followed the Lord Jesus Christ, he preached this to them. Do you know how big the audience was when he preached John 3.16? It was one man who had already proven that he was born again. And he was a teacher in Israel that could understand those words. Jesus never offered the love of God to anyone. Jesus offered the love of God, meaning God's love toward them. He did offer the love of God toward everyone in their love toward God. And he offered it in this sense, that if you don't do it, you're going to be cast into an everlasting hell. Because the kingdom of heaven is for those that love God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he went up into a mountain, so it doesn't matter where you preach. And he sat down, it doesn't matter how you preach. The Lord doesn't care if you're sitting or you're in a mountain. He doesn't care if you're by a riverside or meeting in a house or you've rented the school of one Tyrannus, as the book of Acts tells us. The place doesn't matter. The Lord Jesus Christ couldn't get a place at birth, and he couldn't get a place when he was preaching. So he took what was available, and I'd have been there. Would you have been there with me? I'd have been there. Who cares if it took us two days to walk from Decapolis to get there? Would it have bothered you? Oh, to hear the Son of God, who as chapter 4 and verse 24 told us that his fame went throughout all Syria. That's what it says. All Syria, because of all the miracles he did. What would we have given to have heard the Son of God preach? Here it is. And he says, Blessed are they that believe that have not seen. So consider yourself blessed this morning if you'll believe not having seen him in person. But these are his words. The disciples that came and sat before him or stood before him that he preached to were not just his twelve. Notice we've got a context to be honest with. We have a context in the last verse of chapter 4 And we have a context of the last two verses of this sermon where it tells us that all the people marveled at the way in which Jesus preached. It's not just Peter, James, and John. This was the multitude. He just found himself a convenient place where he could be a little elevated and the people could come to him and he could speak to them. And he did. The ideas about this sermon in the hearts and minds of some people are pitiful. Some people believe Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus setting up a new way to live contrary to the Old Testament. That's not true. Jesus is going to fulfill the Old Testament when he preaches in these three chapters. Some people believe that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the gospel of the kingdom that will be under in some millennium coming in the future where Jewish sacrifices will be restored and it's going to be a Jewish millennium. This is the gospel of the kingdom for that time. Some people believe that. I'll tell you what to believe. 
See, we're not having a sensitivity session this morning where you tell me and I tell you and we all decide what we want to believe. Here's the truth of God's Word. Jesus Christ is delivering the law of God out of the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and presenting it in truth. Don't let anybody mislead you on that. This is how we ought to live right now. And this is how David lived before us and Abraham before the law of God was given. It hasn't changed. God's word's been established and settled in heaven forever. This is what these three chapters are for. Jesus Christ taking the law of God out of the hands of corruptors and compromisers and seeker-sensitive contemporary worship preachers and presenting it in all of its glorious splendor and power so that when he got to the end, it said the people marveled and were astonished because he had taken the law of God and presented it with such power. They had never heard it presented with such authority. The Pharisees were always watering it down or categorizing it, compartmentalizing it, so that you could get away from one of their services and not be too condemned. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to smash us. And rightfully so. He's the Lord of glory. He saved sinners. And He wants those sinners to repent and conform their lives to Him. He wants to lead a band of holy saints, not a band of pleasure-seeking carnal Christians. We begin with the Beatitudes. They're called the Beatitudes because the word Beatitude, the word Beatitude is in the Bible, but the word blessing is here nine times. And guess what a Beatitude is? It's a special blessing. And these are special blessings. They're blessings because you have the word nine times. They're special because the Lord Jesus Christ gave them, gave them in short sentences that we can understand and promised some pretty big blessings that went with them. And there's nine of them. And we want to cover them this morning. Now, brethren, I could take each one of these and go for the next nine Sundays. No problem. There's enough in the Word of God about being poor in spirit and mourning and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and having a pure heart that we can take one a week. But you know what? As I read the sermon, Jesus didn't do that. Do you know how much he gave them to think about in about 20 minutes? So I'm going to approach the same course. A little slower than he did it. We'll try to cover the first 12 verses. This sermon is practical. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he dealt with men, he dealt with the practical aspects of their lives. There's everything in this sermon from sexual thoughts to swearing to savings to enemies and a whole lot of other subjects in between. If you have any thoughts about being a Christian, here's the longest single discourse of his radical view of life that was so contrary to the scribes and Pharisees. Ignore or neglect this sermon to your peril. See, I can tell, and I am not gifted. I can tell who's daydreaming. It's easy. And see, if I can tell, there's a God in heaven that tells a whole lot better. And inside, I bear a long time with you daydreamers. But I have part of me that laughs. Because I've been given a noble position, and I'm not going to crawl to daydreamers. I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to daydream while I am preaching his words for a few minutes out of your 168-hour week, then daydream in hell. 
daydream about what it would have been like if you'd have paid attention when you were back in the church of Greenville listening to the word of God be preached to you. Daydream about how you should have laid hold of righteousness while you were on earth, and now it's everlastingly too late. Go ahead and daydream. Your simple little mind is so small, a gnat could swallow it. And you're a fool. And the Lord Jesus Christ will one day say to you soon, Thou fool! And it's going to be right in this sermon. I'm not your enemy, but I do want your attention because I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now hear his words, and this is his religion. When he had a huge audience, he didn't bring a player from the NBA to give a testimony about how God had given him such great gifts that he could throw a coconut into a basket. No testimonies, no motorcycle gang pulled up on stage and said, Harley Riders for Jesus. This is the religion of Jesus Christ right here. And it's a powerful religion. And it takes a whole lot more man and a whole lot more woman to do the things listed right here than to do what the world teaches, even though it looks so contrary to what the world teaches. Here we go. Poor in spirit. I don't want to take long, and I'm not going to take long. You know what? The issue is not me badgering and, ba- and pounding each of these points to pieces. It's not taking Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 and putting it in a mortar and beating it with a pestle until I've ground it to powder. I have a propensity to do that, and I hate that propensity. Because you know what the real issue is about this sermon? We could almost read it if I knew that there was enough conviction to go home and examine yourselves in the light of it. You know, all that matters is if we're going to examine ourselves in the light of Psalm 15 that's already been read this morning, and anyone listening to this tape or watching this video, turn it off, open your Bibles, and read Psalm 15, where David, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, gave a similar sermon. The point of being here this morning is to take Psalm 15 and Matthew 5, 1 through 12 and examine our lives by it. It's not for me to illustrate it with fancy illustrations or to tell jokes or anecdotes about it, nor is it my place to find 15 cross-references on each point, though I have more than that for each one of these. It's to give you enough to know exactly what it is to be poor in spirit and how to apply it. And we've got to do that quickly, and then we've got to go home. And we have all got to ask ourselves before the Lord of glory, do I have those character traits? Which ones could I have better? Where have I failed and need to repent? And ask the Lord for grace to teach me these things. This is the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These people have the promised blessing of the kingdom of heaven being theirs. A person that's poor in spirit is, has the character trait of being in the kingdom of heaven on earth, a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have heaven waiting for them, which is the kingdom of heaven after this world is over. That is waiting for them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to people like this. And the kingdom of heaven on earth 
which is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in power, has people like this in it. And the way you get into it is a violent overthrow of your life to become poor in spirit. Because by nature, you're not. You are the haughtiest, most arrogant person that there is. Your spirit is puffed up and thinks that your thoughts and your ideas about any subject are better than anyone else's, including God's. We're rich in spirit by nature, but we have to become poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The natural man cries, blessed are the rich, for theirs are the kingdoms of this world, because they bless riches and accomplishments in this life. Blessed are the intense in spirit. Blessed are the ambitious in spirit. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit doesn't have anything to do with being poor in your bank account. If you're poor in your bank account, you've got to ask the Lord, is it your fault or his? If it's yours, you better repent of it. If it's his, you better submit to it and be content. It has nothing to do with poverty. You know, the Catholic would read this, bless the poor in spirit, and they would go join a monastery. (laughs) While they're wandering around that monastery in their brown robe, having taken a vow of poverty, their spirit is more puffed up than anybody you'll ever meet. They can't wait for the next opportunity. They get to leave the monastery and go into town wearing their brown habits. Uh, None of the priests can't wait to be seen in an airport in their outfit so that they can be seen of men because they have a spirit that is so puffed up that they want to wear clothes telling you, I'm one of God's chosen ones. Amen. See, that, that, that isn't poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is thinking that you are worthless before God and men. And getting down to that place is what our goal is. Most religion is geared to uplift men and make them proud rather than to abase them and make them humble before God. Poor in spirit means that you are nothing before God and men, and you have nothing to offer God to please Him. It is to think lowly of yourself. It is to know that before the holy and the, and the righteous God of heaven, you are nothing. It is to know without His grace, you have nothing to offer others, because you are poor in spirit. There is nothing rich about your spirit. There is nothing puffed up or great. You think poorly of yourself, in any spiritual accomplishments or value. You know, all men are worthless. So it's not just believing that all men are worthless. It's believing that your spirit is worthless before God without His grace. You know, this isn't anything new. The Bible had taught it. Keeping your hand at Matthew chapter 5, look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. This is not a new doctrine. This was an old doctrine. But Jesus Christ is resurrecting it because the Pharisees had presented a very different kind of religion. The Pharisees walked around in public with little boxes of Scripture strapped to their foreheads. Now, it's hard for us to imagine someone doing that. A box of Scripture strapped around your forehead and extra borders on all your garments enlarging their phylacteries and the, the scriptures bound on their arms to show how holy they were. But see, that's a puffed up spirit. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, look at what the Lord said in the Old Testament. 
Isaiah 57.15 For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Contrite is crushed, broken, repentant before God. And so our spirits must be poor in that we cannot come before God boldly in ourselves. We must come before God naked and poor, broken and contrite, as Isaiah 57 describes. Look at chapter 66. Same book, Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. When it says, I'll look to the man that's poor, he doesn't mean poor in your wallet. He means poor in your spirit. Poor about your righteousness. Poor about your value before God. You are nothing, and less than nothing, and without abundant mercy, you cannot be saved. You're poor, you're broken, and you tremble before the Word of God. You don't approach the Word of God saying, well, I've never done that one. Thank you, Lord, that I haven't done that one. I'm not like other men. That's being rich in spirit, puffed up in spirit. That is not poor in spirit. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ describe two men praying? The Pharisee said, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like this publican over here. The publican smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a man poor in spirit. That's a man blessed. That's a man who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. What kind of a spirit do you have? Are you poor and broken before God, knowing that you are nothing in his sight? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's terrible. What a, what a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, have I not? Have I not? That's not poor in spirit. The righteous stand before the Lord, and the Lord commends them for all their righteousness. And they say, Lord, when did I? When did I? When did I? What a difference. Do you know that difference in your own heart? Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mourn. Verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This mourning here is not mourning because of a funeral. This mourning here isn't because you didn't get your way, you little spoiled brat. This mourning here isn't because you didn't get the pleasures that you want out of life. You didn't get the house size that you think you deserve. You didn't get the cars that you think you deserve. That kind of mourning is just going to send you to hell because you're discontent with what God's given you. This mourning is about your sins. This is mourning for having broken the law of God, having offended and displeased your Father in heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're going to be comforted in this life because God's going to send a gospel messenger to comfort them. They're going to have that one in a thousand that is able to say, as Job 33 describes, I have found a ransom. 
They're going to hear you. They're going to hear comfort ye, comfort ye my people in the gospel. And it's going to be like salve and a balm to their wounds. They'll be comforted now and they'll be comforted when they stand before the holy tribunal of God and accepted into his presence. They will be comforted. I have paid for all your sins. Mourning one, grieving one, I paid for all your sins. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, there was a woman in Luke chapter 7 that came in while Jesus was at dinner with Simon the Pharisee. And she washed his feet and gave him a kiss on his feet because she was mourning for her sins. Now, I want to tell you at that dinner who was comforted. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say to her? Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven. Amen. But who was he looking at when he said that? Bless his holy name. I serve a great king. I serve a great king who does not crawl to Pharisees. You may think I'm too harsh sometimes. And I've told you this before and I believe this with all my heart. One second in the presence of Jesus Christ and you'll wish I had been harsher. Amen. And I'll wish I'd had someone harsher for me. He looked at Simon the Pharisee and spoke to her. Woman, thy sins are forgiven thee. Amen. Are you a mourner today? Are you a mourner? Are you thinking of the sins that you've committed in the past, the sins that you've committed in the past week? And are you mourning before the God of heaven? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, the Bible tells us to mourn. Holding your hand there, look at James chapter 5, 4 with me, just a moment. James chapter 4. Are you a mourner? The natural man cries, Blessed are the happy and the carefree, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn. I'll tell you, if you'll go to bed morning, and I don't mean bed, and I don't mean nighttime, but sometimes it is that way, there'll be gladness in the morning. That's what the Bible promises. If you'll go to bed morning about your sins, there'll be gladness in the morning. Because the God of heaven will comfort you. Look at James chapter 4 and verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Look at this command from James 4.9. Be afflicted and mourn. And weep. We don't do enough of that. Our whole world is bombarding us that we have a right to pleasure every second of every day. Every second of every day you have a right to pleasure. When the Bible tells us we better take time to do what it says here. To be afflicted and to mourn and weep. If you're laughing, if you're approaching life lightly and foolishly, turn that laughter into mourning. And if your life is filled with carnal and foolish joy, turn that joy into heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, two things so far. 
poor in spirit? Are you worthless in the sight of God and men? Are you mourning and grieving about your sins? And have you afflicted yourself knowing that you're a sinner? They'll be comforted. I can see this audience. Some have already decided that the walk was too long. That the lack of a Starbucks in the foyer of the seeker-sensitive auditorium was out of coffee. And they wanted to go home. Look at the, how the Lord Jesus opens up. Wouldn't this turn... Listen, if you're carnally minded, if you're carnally minded, the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 are the most boring 12 verses in the whole Bible. If you're spiritually minded, and I mean truly spiritually minded, they are honey. Because you're already poor in spirit, and you're being promised the kingdom. You're already mourning, and you're being told that you're going to be comforted. A real believer was sitting there on that mountain, listening to Jesus. A true believer, a David, a Peter, a Mary. And she, they heard these words, and they rejoiced because of the promised blessings being given to one that had this kind of character, and they already knew that they were nothing in the sight of God, and that Jesus was lifting them up and discriminating against everyone else by preaching a message that would drive others away and comfort them with these words. It's precious. What's bad is that we live in the perilous times of the last days, and it's hard for us to have these character traits because there is so much warring against it. It is harder than it was for them. Evil seducers shall wax worse and worse. Perilous times of the last days wouldn't mean anything if all times had been equally perilous. But it's because there's a whole brand of Christianity that doesn't believe in ever feeling poor in spirit. You know what they're doing right now? They are rocking and rolling in the city of Greenville, South Carolina with praise bands and every other vehicle that they can concoct to put everybody in a feel-good spirit. Man, turn around and hug your neighbor. When we're supposed to be poor in spirit and mourning. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I thought the strong inherit the earth. I thought the independent man that made himself, the John Wayne, Sylvester Stallone, Clint Eastwood kind, Mel Gibson is a man that inherits the earth. They're all going to inherit hell, every one of them. They have no place for God or Jesus Christ or the Word of God in their lives. It's the meek. It's the meek. What is meekness? Every woman should pay attention because a spirit that is of great price in the sight of God is a meek and quiet spirit. Meek means to be gentle, courteous, and kind. It's free from haughtiness and self-will, wanting to do things your way. It is to be piously humble and submissive. It is to be patient and unresentful under injury and reproach. It's not to get upset when people hurt your feelings. It's not to get impatient with your husband or your children when they keep offending you or injuring you. It's to be unresentful. It's not to have self-will. It's wanting to serve others. It's humbling yourself and being gentle and courteous and kind to other people. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed are the meek. 
when the whole world says, blessed are the strong. Who, who has the greater strength? The man that can be offended by another man and submit graciously and kindly to it or the man who blows up? The man who blows up has zero strength. Zero. That's why he can't control the childish impulses that were put in him and that he first displayed when he didn't get his bottle on time. And now he's doing it when he's 50 years old. Is That's not strength. Real strength is meekness. Submitting to someone else hurting you when it really doesn't matter. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you know what kind of men are in the Lord Jesus Christ's army? Meek men. Men that when they're hit on one cheek, they turn the other. You say, well, if he's got a whole army of meekness, won't that be a weak army? Not when he's at the front of it. He doesn't need your strength. He needs your poverty. Oh, brethren, wait till we get to tonight. Do you think he needs your strength? When the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, did he mean it? And we'll show you tonight that he meant it. He'll take care of your enemies. You can't take care of your enemies. If you really want to take care of your enemies, he's going to teach you how. Heap coals of fire on their head by treating them well. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. That's a meek man. That's what you do to your enemies. You treat them well. You compliment them. Praise them. Do good to them. Pray for them. Do whatever you can for them. That's a meek man. That is a man that is blessed. That's a man that shall inherit the earth. And that's, that includes the new heaven and the new earth that's coming. Because this is the character of those that will be in heaven. There's so much that can be said about this. Do you, can you handle being defrauded? Didn't we learn when we studied through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 that instead of going to court, you know, there's people that love to sue. Do you know where they're going to be? Do you know where the people that love to sue are going to spend eternity? In hell. They're going to go to hell because they want to sue everyone. A meek man doesn't sue. A meek man, when someone tears off his jacket, says, hey, if you need clothes so bad, I've got a tie and a shirt to give you as well. That is exactly what we're going to read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That kind of an attitude, well, I'm going to sue him for doing that to me. What in the world? You're talking like the devil. When somebody does something against you, forgive them. See, no one in here has had anything done against them that was so severe you needed to sue them. Forgive them. Oh, once in a while there's an exception, but see, we don't deal with exceptions because people that love to sue will lay hold of the exception. I hope you all understand that. That always giving the exceptions to every point in the Word of God, which God never did, in one place in the Bible. He didn't give the exceptions when he was giving a lesson. Because all that does is water down the lesson until nobody gets anything. The Bible says if somebody wants your cloak, give him your coat too. What difference does it make if you have a cloak and coat or not? As long as you're being meek. So much can be said about meekness. You know what? Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Those people got on his nerves so many times and he kept right on praying for them. A meek man. Are you meek? Are you meek in your family? Are you meek on the job? Are you meek in the church? Are you meek with your neighbors? Meek. I can submit patiently and unresentfully to people wronging me. 
It doesn't bother me. If somebody takes something from me, it doesn't bother me. If they smack me on one cheek, and I haven't seen any of you do that to each other recently, I'll just turn to them the other. If they say something about me, so what? Meek. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Look at the different, look at the character. Some of you, and all of us by nature, all of us by nature have a part of us that hungers and thirsts after pleasure. Oh, you're just going to sit there and stare at me? Amen. There's part of you that hungers and thirsts after pleasure. Amen. It's our fleshly nature. Some of you, that's all you've got. All you can think about is, I want to have fun. I want to be cool. Talk about it in hell. You're going to want to be cool then. You're going to want a cool drop of water on your tongue. And I'm not trying to make light of a very serious place. But the language is so ridiculously infantile. Infantile means you need a diaper to use language like that. I want to be cool or I want to have fun. That's hungering and thirsting after this world. I want to make money. I want to have power. I want to have influence. I want people to see me when I walk into church or I walk anywhere. There goes so-and-so. He's a successful man. That's all a crock. That's garbage. That's dung. Paul said it's all dung to him. If you need help with my language. What should you be hungering and thirsting after? Righteousness. Righteousness. Did Paul hunger and thirst after righteousness? He said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and be conformable to his sufferings. He wanted legal righteousness to know that he would be in the resurrection at that day and he wanted more practical righteousness. We want to lay hold of both. We want to lay hold of legal righteousness that when we stand before Jesus Christ we'll be seen in his righteousness and not in our own. And we want practical righteousness of living a righteous life in here and now on this earth. This is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Is your greatest ambition to be more righteous? Beatitude number four. Is your greatest ambition and desire to be more righteous? Or is it to have more fun? Or is it to do more things? Or is it I wish my parents would let me do more? There's not a parent in here that will stop you from hungering and thirsting after righteousness. No parents have called me saying, my child wants more and more righteousness. When do I tell them to stop? None of that. The Psalms are full of David. I'll tell you what David hungered and thirsted after. Amen. He thirsted after God, the living God. When can I approach unto my God? As the heart pants after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. He hungered and thirsted after righteousness. You don't need to hear more about it. You just need to ask yourself, are you doing it? And I'll give you the answer for you. I'll make it easy so that you can get convicted. No, you're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness like you should. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I want the mercy of God. I need the mercy of God. I have needed it. I need it presently. And I am surely going to need it in the future. And he tells me that when I forgive others their trespasses against me, he'll forgive me my trespasses against him. That is not fair. That is not fair. Does that make sense to you? That does not make any sense to me, brother. That me forgiving you would be enough for God to forgive me because my sins against God are infinite and your sins against me are nothing. Is that fair to you? Is that incredibly merciful? He shows mercy in the rule. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For God to give us rebellious worms mercy. What is it? What what is mercy from one worm to another? Nothing in comparison. How merciful are you? Mercy means when you've got somebody where they owe you, where you've got somebody who's wronged you, and you could get your pound of flesh, you could criticize them, you could hurt them, you don't do it. That's mercy. If you're living with anyone, you have an opportunity to show mercy every day. Don't I know it? I mean the mercy that needs to be shown toward me and the mercy I need to show others. Somebody wrongs you, hurts you, offends you, and you have a right to come back and bite back if you wanted to, but you don't. They've done something wrong against you, but you don't hold it against them. You are merciful. The Good Samaritan showed mercy. The Good Samaritan passed by a wounded Jew and helped him. He could have gone to the other side of the road like a Levite and a priest did. They were of the man's own nation. Are you merciful? Do you look for people that you can show mercy to? That means you don't really have a right to anything from you, but you give it to them anyway. Because you're merciful. Are you merciful? Are you always looking for where can I give in to give somebody else what they want when I really shouldn't have to give in? God will reward that with mercy himself. That is a better than fair exchange. Blessed are the merciful. And those that love judgment without mercy, that's what they're going to get in their lives. James 2.13 Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, the natural man cries out, No one else is going to protect you, so you'd better protect yourself. Man, you've got to stand up for your rights. You've got to look out for number one. There's a matter of principle involved here. No, there isn't. There's a matter of pride involved here. And shake it. Crush it. Reject it. You don't need to look out for number one. Who's going to look out for number one? The Lord's going to look out for you. Let Him look out for you. You be merciful. If you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. That's not how you get ahead. The Bible says the merciful will obtain mercy. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
That's quite a promise attached to that one, don't you think? Can a man see the Lord now? He can see him spiritually and have his presence very close to him. God will show him his covenant for those that really fear the Lord. Psalm 25. But there's a time coming where they'll see God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ because they'll be in heaven. And how, what is the character trait that gets them there? They're pure in heart. Now, I've already said something this morning about a religion of the hands. The Pharisees were awesome with their hands. They were like my mother. I, what I meant by that, she wasn't a Pharisee, but she made me wash my hands before I ate. Oh, they washed their hands all the time. They had a fetish about washing their hands because their religion was so external. Can you imagine a religion so external that one of the main fundamental doctrines and dogmas of your church is washing hands? The point being, and Jesus looked at them and said, they're whited sepulchers. There's dead, rotting carcasses inside those men. They've got scripture strapped in their forehead, on their arms, their borders enlarged in their garments, and they're washing their hands all the time, but they're rotted inside. And he said, how shall they escape the damnation of hell? You know, we dress up on Sundays. We come in here and we act like we're all good Christians. But is that Christianity something that affects the way we speak all week long? The way we think all week long? The way we relate, relate to others all week long? That is what counts because it flows out of the heart. A good tree, a good tree that has a good heart cannot have bad fruit. And a bad heart cannot have good fruit. Jesus is going to teach in Matthew chapter 12. It's the pure in heart that are received by the God of heaven. It was David out of the eight sons of Jesse that God chose because he's told Samuel, men look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David was chosen because David had a better heart. David loved his father Jesse from his heart better than his seven brothers. His seven brothers went down to ignominy and shame. David went to the throne of Israel. David loved his mother from his heart. And he made it to the throne of Israel. All of his actions flowed from a heart. You know, there are children that show up at family reunions. There are children that send birthday cards. There are children that send anniversary cards to their parents, and none of that means anything. I don't care if the parents like it or not in the sight of God. That isn't what counts. What is sending that? Is it the need to do something outwardly to make your parents think that you love them? Or is it flowing out of a heart that truly does love them? Are you here this morning? Because you have to be, that if you weren't, there'd be consequences to pay of some sort in your life by not being here. Or are you here because you have a heart that loves the things of God and knows there's no better place on earth to be? Blessed are the pure in heart. They're not thinking evil while saying nice things, as we've already seen in Psalm 15. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Are you measuring your hearts? Do you know what James chapter 4 told us, the verse before, the one I read already? James 4, 8. Purify your hearts. Ye double-minded. To purify your hearts is to have one focused goal for your heart. 
and it affects all your actions. And you can purify your heart. Of course, we're not talking about any eternal, legal, vital, or final purification of your heart, but you can purify it by getting rid of distracting motives and having one, the glory of God. I have a pure heart. I love my parents. I love my employer. I love this. I love that. I'm going to do right. I'm always going to do right. I think right. I love my sister. I love my sister. From the heart. When we sing, I sing with my heart to the Lord. I don't just mouth the words. I don't sing loud to make people think around me that I'm a good Christian. I don't sit and line my children up with me so that it looks like I have a great godly family. I have a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a religion of the heart that Jesus Christ honors, and he will not honor that outward religion of the Pharisees. If there's one point he's going to make in the next three chapters, the outward, the outward conforming of our lives to impress other people that we're pretty decent Christians, that doesn't mean anything to him. He wants our hearts. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The natural man values pride, self-defense, self-vindication, and principle over peace. But a true child of God loves peace, and he'll do anything to make peace. If someone has offended him, what does a true child of God do? He overlooks it gloriously and forgets it to create peace again with that party. Because if he's to hold bitterness against that party, he knows nothing of Jesus Christ. Bitterness has no place in the religion of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what was done to you. What did you do to Jesus Christ? He doesn't seem to be very bitter with you. Amen. What's bitterness for? Bitterness is from hell. You say, where is that in the Bible? James 3, 14 through 17. But the wisdom that is from beneath is full of envy and strife and bitterness. We're, we're to be peacemakers. The true children of God are peacemakers. If someone offends me, I gloriously overlook it. Some of these are running into each other, aren't they? These definitions. Because it's very simple. If you had a heart and mind of the Spirit of God, they'd all go together. You couldn't have eight of these and be missing one, because if you had eight, you'd have the ninth too. They're too closely connected. If that person has done something against me, it's so serious that I can't overlook it. If I'm so weak, so childish, that I have to get upset because of something someone said to me or did to me, if I'm that childish, then there's a Bible way to go make peace again. To regain your brother. It's taught in Matthew 18. If I think that maybe I've offended someone else, so that the peace has been broken that way, Matthew 5, before we get out of this chapter, will teach us how to go take care of that. Because the Lord does not want us bringing an offering into His house, which means to be here this morning if we have a problem with someone. Peacemakers. Then what, do you, what happens to you when you know that two people aren't doing too well together? Any two people of this congregation, you know there's thousands of relationships in this church, of one-on-one relationships. When you know that two people are not getting together, what do you turn your do you turn a walk the other way saying, Well, I don't want to get involved in anything that's none of my business? Or are you a peacemaker? And you go and try to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
they shall be called the children of God. That is a true child of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So many verses could be listed about peace. Bitterness is totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you allow a root of bitterness in your life, I didn't say a tree. It'll become a tree. I said a root of bitterness. A root. You can take a little tiny root and put it in a glass of water and you're eventually going to get yourself a tree. If you allow that little, bit, that little root of bitterness in your heart, you have enough evil fertilizer in your flesh that it will feed that and it will grow into, the, into Jack's beanstalk. It'll choke everything out of your life. It'll grow right through the clouds. It'll dominate your life if you cannot put away the roots of bitterness. And do you know what Hebrews chapter 12 tells me about a person that can't put away a root of bitterness? He's got the character of Esau, who when he comes begging with tears for repentance, there is no repentance found for him. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, brethren, let's all be peacemakers in this church with ourselves, others, and when we see it between other parties. Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, is that contrary to the world? The world says, Blessed are they which are prosperous for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they which are popular for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they that can preach the gospel and meet with popes and presidents like Billy Graham. That's true blessedness. Blessed are they that can preach righteousness and fill a church with 15,000 members. No, Jesus didn't say anything. You know, Jesus couldn't do that. Jesus couldn't fill a church with 15,000 members. Oh, he could. He could. But, you know, natural men didn't like the preaching of Jesus Christ. I hope you all understand the point that I'm making. He will. He does have a pretty large assembly in heaven. It's called the General Assembly. And it's called an innumerable company of angels. I think that's a pretty big attendance board when it's innumerable. But the point is, men, men want to be able to have righteousness and popularity. Men want to have righteousness and prosperity. There is the prosperity gospel and there is the popular gospel. But Jesus Christ preaches, those who are truly following righteousness are going to be persecuted for it and they are blessed. This is not being persecuted because you're doing something wrong. You know, some, some people have a persecution, a, a persecution complex all the time. Everybody's out for them. Their boss is out for them. The working conditions at work are out against them. Everything's against them. The government actually holds meetings, high-level meetings, to conspire against them, actually. Everything is out to persecute them. And see, God doesn't care about any of that persecution. He's talking about persecution for righteousness' sake. When you're living such a godly life for Christ Jesus that people make fun of you. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. When you're doing right, not in your opinion, God doesn't care, and I don't care, and you shouldn't care about your opinions. That isn't right. The righteousness here is always God's definition of what is right. When you're doing what God says is right and people persecute you for it, you are blessed. Don't be worried by that. Don't be worried as 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us, they call you strange. 
because you won't run to the same excess with them that you once did. They call you strange. You know what? That'd be a, boy, that'd be an exciting day, wouldn't it? When somebody at work would call you strange? Or you'd go to a high school reunion? Ooh. And they'd call you strange? Thank you, Lord. Amen. You could say, thank you. Thank you. I am strange. I'm a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for making me one. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from popularity and prosperity. Blessed are ye when men, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the Lord repeats what he gave us in verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These promised blessings are true of all the children of God, but it's, it's laid out there as encouragement for us to have these character traits. It's laid out there for the comfort of those that already had these character traits. There were some sitting there listening to the Lord Jesus Christ who'd already been persecuted for righteousness' sake. And they took these words as great comfort. The Bible tells us this about the perilous times of the last days. The Bible does address 2005. It is found in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. And it says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is within the 22 verses of the perilous times of the last days. Don't let it creep out of its context. That verse applies to us. And do you know who the persecutors will be? Will be Christians. Carnal Christians will call you strange and persecute you and despise you for trying to live a godly, righteous life by God's standards. Blessed are ye. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Don't worry about if you suffer a few losses of friends or family now. I'll make up for it later. And I'll make up for it now, too. I'll give you a hundredfold more of fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters and friends and houses and lands. And in the time to come, I'll give you everlasting life. Is that a fair trade? That is an unfair trade. It's all stacked in our direction. The Lord is so merciful and so good. Verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, because you've taken the name of Christian. When you've taken the name of Christian and they're falsely accusing you, let's not take the name of Christian and give them something that they can accuse us of rightly. First Peter deals with that when it says if you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer as a Christian, not as an evildoer. So we're not doing evil, we're doing right. But we're suffering because we've taken his name and they revile you. And they persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. There is no limit to how much the wicked hate the righteous. Jesus knew that. These two verses apply to his ministers a little bit more than the first few verses. Because his ministers, his apostles were about to go out and they were going to preach and they were going to find this most true. That they were going to be reviled and persecuted for having taken the name of Jesus Christ. But there was comfort for them. Look what the Savior said. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Get excited. Get excited when you are being pummeled, chased, despised, and hated because you're attached to my name. 
Get excited about that. Because it's evidence that there is a great reward being held out for you. And they are treating you the same way they treated the prophets that came before you. You are in the company of the prophets when you live a life taking my name that other people despise you for it. What a great deal of comfort. How many have stood at the stake as they lit as they lit the wood at their feet and the flames began licking up their bodies and remembered verses like this. Blessed are ye. Blessed are ye. Blessed are ye. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. And those men knew that they were going to that reward very quickly as the oxygen was being consumed in front of them and the heat was coming up into their nostrils and the skin was burning off their legs. They knew that there was a great reward in heaven because they knew the prophets had been treated that way. We have many martyrs that have laid down their lives like that because they believed the word of God and they took comfort from verses like this of comfort that were given to them. You know what the Lord asks of us? A living sacrifice. We're not going to die at the stake this week. But I'll tell you, we need to die every day at the stake. A stake called a cross by bearing our cross every day and putting down our sins and those things that we delight in that are ungodly and that are contrary to the Word of God. We need to lay them down and, and crucify them and crucify the world to ourselves and be as bold as our ancestors have been in the faith and trust these words right here that when the world despises us, For being too extreme. You're being too conservative. You're being too doctrinal. You're being too picky. Blessed are ye when you do it for my sake. Blessed are ye when you do it for righteousness' sake. Great is your reward in heaven. You need to ask yourself, is this true of my life? Every one of you. Every one of you. You need to ask yourself nine questions. Am I poor in spirit? Do I have a spirit that is worth... I don't consider myself anything in the sight of God or men. Truly, before Him I am nothing. Am I mourning about my sins? Am I meek? Can I put up with the injury of others and it doesn't bother me? Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Am I really hungering and thirsting after righteousness more than anything else? Am I merciful in all my dealings with everyone? Am I merciful to the degree that of, of the mercy I want God to show toward me? Do I have a pure heart or are some of the things I'm doing for outward appearance only? Am I a peacemaker with others? Am I always trying to have peace in my home, my marriage, my church? On the job, always striving to create peace for everyone. Am I living a life that I could even get persecuted for? And am I willing to be persecuted for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I willing to make changes in my life that other people might think strange or too conservative, even in this church? Am I willing to do that? May the Lord bless us to examine ourselves by Psalm 15 and by Matthew 5, 1 through 12. For he that doeth these things shall never be moved. And there's great reward. And you're part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the character of his saints.
May Jesus Christ be praised.